This is New Life Christian Fellowship's weekly message podcast. You can find us online at newlifepetaluma.org. And now, this week's message. All right, good morning, everybody. Welcome to church. I am, I'm really looking forward to spending some time with you today. If we haven't met yet, my name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here at New Life, and I'm going to guide us for the next 35 minutes or so as we continue to engage with God. Uh, And if you came last week for the first time, we missed each other because I was on vacation in Illinois uh, visiting my wife's family. We had a great trip, but I told you a couple weeks ago that I've been in two tornadoes. Remember this story? I've been in two tornadoes. Well, we were out there, had a great trip, and we were leaving on last Wednesday. And if you watched the weather last week, Wednesday, like, it was like the convergence of all things weather around Illinois. And we flew out, and four hours later we landed. And in the time that we were flying, two tornadoes touched down 15 miles from my in-law's house. So for some reason, they have like a magnet whenever I'm in town. But we got out. 150 flights got canceled, but we got out, which was very good uh, for us. Sad for the folks got left behind. But you know what? I think they're out now. So that's good. Uh, all that to say... I've been on vacation. I'm guessing some of you have been on vacation or you're going on vacation, and I just want to say welcome back. I know summer is a crazy time where we're traveling all over the place, but boy, when we can be together, it just makes me so happy to share some time with you. So I just want to welcome you to church. Uh, If you're brand new, you're going to want to grab a few things out of your program that get us all on the same page, on the same team. The first is this card that says start here. Go ahead and fill that out. We're going to use it a little bit later today. It's just a connection card. It helps us stay connected to you, helps you stay connected to us. We won't abuse your information. We just want to serve you in any way we can as a pastoral community. So go ahead and get that filled out. You're going to want your teaching notes because they're going to tell you where we're going today, the Bible verses we're looking at. They're going to give us some next step conversation starters to have with our housemates and our life groups, with our spouse, with our kids. So go ahead and grab that as well. And, uh, and I just want you to make yourself at home. Whether it's your first time or your hundredth time, we created this space so that you could come, let your guards down, tear the walls down, and just experience God together with us. So if that means kicking off your shoes, kick off your shoes. If that means grabbing some coffee, grab some coffee. My coffee machine broke this morning. My coffee pot broke, which if you know me, you know that is quite the tragedy. And I'm always thankful for our guest services team, but especially today. Because I got here, and they got here early, and they were making coffee for us, making us feel at home. So I just want to thank our guest services team. Would you guys just join me in thanking our team for the work they do? We have probably 40 or 50 people who serve on our guest services team throughout the month. They're the ones that greet you when you come in. They're the ones that make the coffee and prepare this space for you. And they're just an incredible crew of people. Well, let me catch us up on where we've been by starting with a little story. And I don't know if you can resonate with this, but... Let me think, this coming week, July 1st, will mark eight years since I came on staff here at New Life. Uh, I was a kid back then, and, uh, and I was the youth and family pastor. They figured, you're almost a youth, so you should be the youth and family pastor. And part of being the youth and family pastor meant that I led our midweek student ministries uh, services. And that meant that I was always the last one here on Wednesday nights. That's when we used to do it. And this building, well, it is a great building. If you're ever here at night alone, it is super creepy. I just want to say, especially if you don't have your wife here to like send her ahead of you to make sure that you're safe. Like it is very creepy. And I remember it would almost always work out this way. I'd get all the lights turned off in the building and we even, it's like a haunted mansion when it rains. We even have a drip, drip, drip in the auditorium and there'd be the drip sound and I'd go to set the alarm and they'd say one door is open, but it never told you which door was open. So then I'm too lazy to turn the lights back on. I would like feel my way through the building to try to find the right door. And it was always that one over there. It always got left cracked open. 
So I'd shut it and I'd leave. But this space in the dark, in the dark, gets a little creepy. And this is a great space. This is a church building, for goodness sake. But think back to when you were a kid. Isn't it true that, that the, in the dark, your mind plays tricks on you? Think back. Or if you have kids, uh, think back to that night when you really needed a good night's sleep. You had an interview the next morning. You had a big proposal. And the kids woke up, and they were crying, and they were screaming, there's something in the dark. There's something there. Daddy, Mommy, I'm scared. And what would you do if you were a parent in those moments? Hopefully, you wouldn't slap your child. Hopefully, what you would do is you would, what? You'd turn on the lights. And you'd say, look, there's, there's nothing to be afraid of. Because once the lights come on, the power of the darkness is gone. And that's what we're talking about in this series right now. We're talking about turning the lights on, shedding some light on the spiritual realm. Uh, We've spent, I think, 10 weeks in a series that we called um, The Good Life, which is all about Jesus talking about this invisible kingdom, this kingdom of heaven uh, that's in the unseen world where God is the king and we're his children and all the implications of that. But just like there's an invisible spiritual world where God is the king, there's also an invisible spiritual world that is at odds with God. There is a devil, and there are, um, there are demons, and they are at war with God in the spiritual world. And they're not only at war with God, they're actually at war with us. And what we've been doing for three weeks, because we don't think the devil deserves nearly as much airtime as God does, so God got ten, he only gets three. What we've been doing is trying to shed light on the, the, the devil's tactics, the devil's schemes, the things that he does to try to take us out of the game. And if you've missed any part of this series, here's what we talked about on week one. On week one, we said, this is why we believe there actually is a spiritual world that includes the devil and the demonic. And we tried to lay it out over the course of the whole Bible to give us a well-rounded view because we said this pendulum kind of swings back and forth from there is no kind of evil spiritual world to there's a demon under every rock. And we said we don't want to have a weirdness. We want to have an awareness. And so I tried to give you guys an awareness without having a weirdness about the spiritual world. That was week one. Week two, we talked about the devil's main tactic to try to take you out because the devil is not that creative, but he's really good at what he does. He doesn't have new tactics. He uses the same one or two, and he uses them over and over again to try to get you when you're at your weakest moment. And the tactic he uses is he lies to us. And Pastor Ron talked all about how the devil lies to us and how he tries to take us out of the game with half-truths. And today I want to talk about the one-two punch of the devil. Because once he lies to us and gets us believing something that's not true, either about ourselves, about our spouse, or our kids, or our coworkers, or most importantly about God, When he gets us believing something that's not true in our minds, it oftentimes affects what we do with our actions because the way we think affects the things that we do. And so he gets us believing lies in our minds, which affects our actions. And then the minute he can get us believing the wrong things, he takes the one-two punch. And the second punch is the one that knocks us out. It's condemnation. He condemns us. We do the wrong thing, and he says, and you are the wrong person. And I want to talk today about condemnation about the lies the devil uses to try to get us alone, get us by ourselves, and hurt us. Then I want to talk about what God has given us in terms of finding freedom from the devil's accusations. You could say it like this. Lies followed by condemnation are the devil's one-two punch if he's going to knock you out of the game of life. Notice the way that John talks about this in the book of Revelation chapter 12. He says, the accuser, when he's talking about the devil, the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before God day and night has been hurled down. And that word accuser in the ancient language is, um, it's a legal term. 
It's for a prosecuting attorney. He says the devil is like a prosecuting attorney, and he goes before God, and he goes before people, and he comes to you, and he tries to accuse you. He tries to make everyone believe, including you, that you're wrong, and that you deserve the penalty for the choices that you're making. He wants everyone, including us, to feel extremely guilty for the things that we do. He condemns us, and he hurts us. And Peter, one of Jesus' best friends, he talks about how the devil does that. And if you know Peter's story, Peter made some, some horrible choices right at the end of Jesus' life that he had every opportunity to experience condemnation. And here's how he talks about the devil. He says, this is what the devil does to try to condemn us. He says, be alert, be sober-minded. Your enemy, and Pastor Ron talked about this last week, your enemy, the devil's not just God's enemy, he's your enemy too. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And here's the thing about lions. Lions hunt at night. Do you know why they hunt at night? Because they have better eyesight at night than their prey does. And so lions roam around at night. They're looking for for a, a lowly little animal who's by itself, who's been separated from the herd, who's at its weakest point. And when they find that animal alone, if they can get it by itself, if they can get it in the dark, that's when they pounce. And that's when they devour. And Peter says that the devil, he's just like a lion. And he's roaming around and he's looking for you at your weakest point, at your lowest point, at the point when the world is kind of falling apart around you. And when everything's falling apart, the devil who can see what's going on, he takes that moment to strike. He gets you in the dark, he keeps you in the dark, and he pounces with his condemnation. You could say it like this, the devil... He waits until he finds you at your lowest moment. And then he tells you that your lowest moment is the sum and total of who you are. The devil doesn't just say, hey, you made a bad decision there. That was a bad choice. Probably shouldn't have said that. Probably shouldn't have done that. He says, you remember that decision you made, that choice you made, that thing you said, that thing you did? That defines you and will define you for the rest of your life. He says it like this. Did you yell at your kids last week? You're an unfit parent. Did you make a mistake at work? You're sinking the company. It's not just a mistake. You are literally ruining the company, everyone's lives. Did you forget your kids at school? You're giving your kids abandonment issues. Better start saving up for counseling. I speak a lot. This is part of my job, and I love it. And I'm an external processor, which means at least a quarter of the things I say up here on a Sunday are not here in my notes. They just kind of pour out. That is very fun most of the time. (laughs) But it allows every opportunity for me to say dumb stuff from stage or do embarrassing things. In fact, a few weeks ago, uh, I, was, I was visiting a different church. They're, they have a, kind of a one-pastor staff. It's a smaller church, and they don't have a, a teaching team like we do. And so the pastor was going on sabbatical, and he asked me if I would come and preach at his church. And we are so blessed, by the way. We are so blessed to have a great teaching team, aren't we? That we have myself, we have Ron, we have Jake, we have Angela. We have people who can teach on a regular basis. And so I said, well, we've got a team, and he's by himself. So I went and spoke at this church. It's a small church, maybe, maybe 80 or 90 people there that day. And it's a, a little more traditional than we are. They had a big podium in front. So I said, hey, am I going to upset anybody if I, if I like move the podium and use my iPad? And they said, no, you can try. So I already had kind of moved some things around. 
But next to the, where the podium stood, there was this little table with three legs. And on it was like their church's Bible and a box of Kleenex. I don't know what normally happens at their church services, but um, they had a box of Kleenex there. And I didn't know if I could take my coffee on stage, so I grabbed a Dixie cup of water with no top on it. And I went up, and I set the water down on this little three-legged table, and I moved it over. The problem was... There was a little lip here that I didn't really notice, and one of the legs was just off the lip. And so as I'm trying to get to know these people, sharing with them, talking, trying to like build some rapport, all they can see is this table that's wobbling at the edge with the Bible and my water for three minutes. And my wife was there and she said, Kevin, I was just watching in slow motion like a horror movie, like turn around, turn around, you know? And wouldn't you know, just as we're building rapport, the the table falls over. I grab the table. The water pours all over their Bible. And the first thing I say into the microphone is, sweet Jesus, I'm so sorry I spilled on your word. Like that's what pours out of my mouth. Sweet Jesus, I'm so sorry I spilled on your word. Followed by, well, I've got a five and a seven-year-old at home. We spill on holy books all the time. That's what I said to him. You can imagine you can imagine. I'm five minutes into a message that I believe has the power to transform lives. And all I can come up with is, sweet Jesus, I'm sorry I spilled on your word. Now, in that moment, I'm still talking, I'm still preaching, but I'm fighting an internal battle because the devil wants me to think things like this. Who do you think you are? God would be so embarrassed of you right now. You spilled on the Bible. He takes our worst moment and he tries to convince us that that is the sum and total of who we are. That's how he condemns us. But the truth is, you and I are not defined by our lowest moment, by our worst decision, or by our biggest fear. We're defined by our relationship to God. And over the course of the series that we just finished, The Good Life, we said over and over again, here's our relationship with God. If you become a follower of Jesus, you're adopted into God's family. You are God's daughter. You are God's son with all the rights and privileges of a family member of God. That's how you're defined. Regardless of the words you say or the things you think or the choices you make, you're not defined by those at your base level. We are defined only by our relationship to God. And if someone's going to get excited, this would be a good time to get excited by that information. Because I'm telling you, the devil hits us over and over and over again and says, your failure defines you. But Jesus says, your relationship to God defines you. I love the way that Zig Ziglar says it. He says, failure is an event. It isn't a person. Failure is an event. It isn't a person. But the devil wants you to think that failure is a person. And the devil wants you to think that that person looks eerily similar to the person staring at you in the mirror. So he takes our worst moment. He says, that is who you are. Now, I want to pull over to the side of the road for a second. And I want to talk about two words that we see in the Bible that sometimes get mixed up. And if these two words get mixed up, they actually cause us a lot of trouble. So I want to be very clear about them. The words are condemnation and conviction. Those are similar sounding, but they're very different. The devil condemns. We're told that God's spirit actually convicts. And God's conviction leads us one direction, and the devil's condemnation leads us another direction. 
And we see this really clearly in the book of 1 Corinthians. The guy named Paul who's writing this book, he's writing to the Corinthians because, well, because they're really screwed up, basically. Like, they were doing things that would make Vegas blush. I'm not making this up. You should read 1 Corinthians. It's crazy. They're doing some crazy stuff. And Paul spends the whole time in this letter saying, hey, guys, that's not good. It's not good for you. It's not honoring to God. It's not honoring to your spouse, to your friends, to this community. It's not the way you were designed to live. And then we get to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where they heard his correction. They experienced conviction, and they had a change of heart. And notice what Paul says. He says, godly sorrow, that is conviction. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation. And here's the part I want you to underline. It leaves no regret. You want to know the difference between condemnation and conviction? Conviction is from God, and it leads to a change of mind, which leads to a change of action. That's called repentance. And it always walks us towards freedom. Condemnation, he says, worldly sorrow leads to death. Worldly sorrow is condemnation. And condemnation only leads us to isolation, to pain, and to regret. And the two are very different. But sometimes it's hard to know because, because oftentimes on the heels of conviction, Satan tries to bring condemnation. Conviction is, boy, that choice was not a helpful choice for me, for my family, for our work, for our kids. I'm going to change the way I think about that. I'm going to invite God to transform my thoughts around that, and I'm going to walk out and experience freedom. That's conviction. Condemnation happens after we make that choice, and we realize that wasn't a good choice. And the devil says, and that, that's you. This other thing over here where you were doing pretty good, he would say even a broken clock is right twice a day. This bad moment here, that's really you. And you better hide yourself because if anyone really knew that you, they'd never accept you. They'd never like you. They'd never want to be with you. Conviction that comes from God always, always leaves us regret-free. Always. Condemnation leaves us feeling horrible and alone. Always. I want to close by talking about how God invites us to fight condemnation. Because there's, there's a guy in the Bible, and if there was ever a person who had an opportunity to experience condemnation by comparison to someone else, it was this guy. His name is James, and he happens to be the half-brother of Jesus. Now, just let that sink in for a second. How would you like to be the little brother of Jesus? Like, why can't you be more like your brother? Could you imagine how many times he heard that? Jesus never talks back. Like, stop hitting Jesus. He just keeps turning the other cheek. Could you imagine, like, what it would be like? like hey, James, go to the well and get some water. Oh, it's cocktail hour. Never mind. We'll have Jesus do it. That'll sink in. Could you, could you imagine being Jesus? Uh, just think about it. Be, yeah, that was hilarious. Could you imagine being Jesus' half-brother? Someone over there was like, he just got, he's like, yeah, that's funny. Wine country joke. James had every opportunity to experience condemnation with his life. Every opportunity. He was the half-brother of the Son of God. He was the half-brother of the Son of God. And he teaches us in a letter called the Book of James... God's tools to fight condemnation. If anybody needed to fight it, it was James. And this is what he says. 
And I love it. And we're going to talk about it because I'm going to read it and you're going to like, some of us are going to have this like, oh, this pullback feeling. Nope, been there, done that, not touching it with a 10-foot pole. Here's what he says. Therefore, confess your sins to each other. And each other doesn't mean your pastor. It means each other. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And here's the thing about confession. Confession has left a bad taste in a lot of our mouths. Because over the course of Christian history, confession has kind of been manipulated to not be the gift that God actually designed for it to be. If you were around for our series, Top Shelf Jesus, we talked about the fact that, that throughout Christian history, there was kind of the everyday follower of Jesus, and then there was the religious leader here who was the gatekeeper between God and the people. But Jesus came to actually pull out the middleman and give us full access to himself. But we said that throughout history, Christian leaders, pastors and priests and, and clergy have stepped into that role and said, do you want to get to God? You got to come through me. And confession was actually one of the key ways that they did it. Here's what confession looked like throughout the course of church history. Do you want to be forgiven by God? You have to come to me, your pastor or your priest, and confess. And then you'll be forgiven by God. Do you want to take communion? Experience and celebrate Jesus' death and resurrection? You have to come to me, your pastor or priest, first and confess. And then you can take communion. And so it became this weird go-between. But Jesus came and he said, you don't have to confess to anyone except for me. Not, not me, me. Jesus said, when you confess to me, your sins are forgiven. And yet, after Jesus lived, died, and rose again, James, his half-brother, says there's something really good about confession. And here's what it is. This is, this is brilliant what James says. He says there are, there are at least four ways that confession helps us punch condemnation in the nose. And the first is this. Confession brings the devil's condemnation into light and reveals it as a lie. When we confess to each other, we bring this this secret thing into the light. Remember, the devil is like a lion uh, roaming around at night looking for someone alone by themselves that he can devour. And when he gets us by ourselves, he tries to convince us that we are horrible and no one wants to talk to us or be around us or know us and we're no good and he keeps us isolated by ourselves. But confession actually brings that condemnation into the light. And when things come into the light, they lose their power. Remember your kids crying in their bed. There's something in my room. You flip on the light, it loses its power. Confession brings it into the light. The second thing that I love about confession, confession normalizes our experiences. The devil wants you to think you're the only one who's ever experienced, and you can fill it in. No one's ever done that. No one's ever had those thoughts. No one's ever been trapped in that addiction. You're literally the only one in the world. I can tell you that whether it's shame, fear, guilt, addiction, rage, anger, lust, there are multiple ones of us in here who are dealing with it right now. I just want to tell you, whatever your thing is, you're not alone. You're just not alone. You're not the only one. And confession normalizes it. I was raised in a house where my parents, they have a really good marriage, a really good marriage. And I didn't really see them fight very much. It was amazing. I don't, it was like, wow, we were like, we were like the cleavers. I I don't know how this happened. They didn't really fight. And then I got married. And in my first year, we had some pretty big fights, like big fights. And I thought to myself, we are the worst couple in the history of the world. 
because people who are really in love never fight. And then we joined a marriage life group. And listen, we did all sorts of great curriculum in there. It was very fun. You know the best thing about that marriage life group? It normalized fighting in marriage. It's like, oh, we're not alone because she thinks we should stack the dishwasher this way and I think we should stack it this way and that caused a fight. Oh, we're not alone that she thinks the cup should go here and the plate's there and I think it should be reversed and that caused a fight. Oh, we're not alone. And then we had kids. And the best thing about being in a marriage life group when you have kids, it normalizes it. I remember one of my friends saying to me, my kid was screaming so loud one night and I was just exhausted. And then I heard this loud thud, like they fell out of their, their crib or something. And here's what this person said they thought to themselves. Well, if they're dead, they'll still be dead in the morning. You know, it's like, now, come on, come on. Some of you who don't have kids are like, oh, that's horrible. Everyone who has kids has thought before at 3 a.m., listen, whatever happened, it's happened. I'm not getting up. I'm done. Come on. It normalizes it. I'm telling you, if you haven't had kids yet, you're thinking, who would do that? Every parent. That's who. Every parent. Every dad. I don't know, every parent. (laughs) Confession is not a free pass, but confession gives someone else the chance to say, you're not alone. I'm experiencing that. I've experienced that. I can empathize with you. It brings it into the light, and it normalizes it. The third thing that I love about confession, it allows us to speak God's forgiveness and God's grace to each other. Ultimately, I can't forgive you unless you've offended me. But when you go to God, God has already forgiven you. And I have the privilege, when you confess, when you share with me what you're going through, I have the privilege to be able to say to you on God's behalf, God forgives you. Hey, did you know that God loves you? I have the ability to say, to speak the words of God, you're God's daughter, you're God's son. God wants to heal you. God wants to restore that relationship. I get to speak God's grace on his behalf to you. And the great thing about what James is saying is he's not talking to pastors. This was not a pastor's conference. He's talking to church people at large and saying, confess to each other. Speak forgiveness over each other. And finally, pray for each other. Confession gives us the chance to pray for each other. I've got a friend named John, and John, is, he's just taken this idea, he's taken the bull by the horns. He prays for me all the time. He prays for me via text messages. He calls me on the phone and prays for me. He'll grab me in the lobby and say, hey, how you doing? And I'll say, I'm doing pretty good. And he'll ask me, how you really doing? You know what? I'm not doing good at all. Thanks for asking. And he's grabbed me right outside those doors and just prayed for me. Just prayed for me. Right there. Arms around me hugging me. And God moves when his people pray. He does. But if I don't know what you're going through, I can't pray for you. If you don't know what I'm going through, you can't pray for me. Confession gives us the chance to pray for each other. And friends, this is why I love the topic of community. We've been pressing into community through all sorts of different venues. We're talking about it in life groups, forming actual community in our life groups, friendships where we know each other and we're known by each other. Because in life groups, when we know each other and we're known by each other, then we can confess to each other. Then we can speak God's forgiveness to each other and we can pray for each other. But until we actually get to know each other, there's no way we're going to open up to each other. 
This is why I love the idea of ministry teams, that we're actually creating teams in our ministry, not just work groups that get stuff done, but teams of people who know each other, who love each other, judgment-free zones where we can pray for each other and speak God's forgiveness and God's grace. I love what God's doing in community because community is the key to confession, and confession is the key if you want to punch condemnation in the nose. If it tries to give you the one-two punch, you block with confession, you hit back. I love that metaphor. I'm going to keep using it. I like it. Here's God's promise to you as we close our time together, and then I have one closing thought. God's promise to you is this, from Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now, and I want you to underline this, no condemnation, none for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Jesus Christ, the law of the Spirit that gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. There is therefore no condemnation, none, nada, zilch, zippo, nothing. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And what's it mean to be in Christ Jesus? Well, it starts off by moving God from distant deity to personal, loving, heavenly Father. It starts off when you, you pray and you say, God, I'm done keeping you at a distance. I'm done keeping you at arm's length. I'm ready to invite you into my life to be my leader, to be my savior, to guide me on this journey. That's how we come into Christ Jesus. And then we're told that the work that Jesus did on the cross when he died and rose again to pay the penalty for our sin, the work that Jesus did on the cross is then given to us and we're invited into the family of God. And if you've never entered into a relationship with God, where you would say, I am in Christ Jesus, then I'm going to give you a chance to do that in just a few minutes. But I'm telling you, the sweet thing about God is that there's no condemnation in God. God brings conviction, which leads to freedom. The devil brings condemnation, and there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Here's a closing thought, and then I want to pray for you. Next time the devil tries to condemn you, you can tell him to go to hell. That's my closing thought. Yeah. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if you think that's inappropriate, just don't write it on your notes, okay? I thought that was awesome and totally appropriate. Totally appropriate. Yeah, give it up for God. That's where he's headed. That's not where you're headed if you're in Christ Jesus. You're headed to a life of forgiveness and purpose and healing. You're headed to an eternity that is marked by God where he's created a space for you in heaven where you'll see God face to face. That's where you're headed. And if you've never entered into a personal relationship with God through Christ Jesus, I'm gonna give you a chance to do that right now. And you can do that by praying a simple prayer. So if you join me as we wrap our time up, I wanna pray for you. Would you, would you close your eyes so I can pray? First, I wanna pray for all of us. Holy Spirit, in a room this size, I know there are friends in here who walked in feeling a sense of condemnation. For some of us, we've mistaken that for uh, your spirit convicting us, but we know that conviction actually leads us to a change of thought and a change of action and leads to freedom. And condemnation just spirals us downward into guilt and self-loathing and isolation. And so I would ask even in this moment of prayer, Holy Spirit, if there are friends in here who are, who are living under condemnation from the enemy, would you reveal to them the lie of Satan that they are the sum and total of their worst mistake? And I'm asking, Holy Spirit, would you 
remind them who they are in Christ Jesus. That they're God's daughter and God's son, just adopted into the family. And that there's no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ. Would you give us courage to walk out confession? Would you actually, would you give us community first? Would you give us community? Real groups that authentically know each other. Friendship circles where we are safe, judgment-free zones. And then would you give us the courage to practice what we're learning, to confess to one another, to pray for one another, to lift each other up and speak your forgiveness into our lives. Holy Spirit, would you do that work? And in that process, would you transform us, help us to experience more of your freedom, more of your joy, and more of the life you've called us to. And as we wrap our prayer up, if you're ready to commit your life to God, if you're ready to be adopted into God's family, experience God's forgiveness and his leadership in your life, you can repeat this simple prayer. Just whisper these words. Say, Lord Jesus, I believe that you, that you love me deeply and that you gave your life on the cross to pay the penalty for my sin. And I want to have a relationship with you. So would you come into my life? Would you forgive me, God, of my sin? Would you fill me with your Holy Spirit And would you show me how to follow you every day from this day forward? I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. You can find more information about New Life, including contact information, at newlifepetaluma.org. Thanks for listening.